think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And either they're both boys and girls, because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 64 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 65th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Aitzen Rainville. And uh, welcome to our first episode of 2019, a mm-hmm. year that promises to be incredibly good for, for just... For everyone involved, it's going to be a lot of fun. We've made it through, what, two years of doing this now? Yes. This will be roughly the two-year anniversary. Uh, Yeah, actually, I suppose it is, isn't it? Right around this time, yeah, two years ago. Yeah, right, right at the beginning of the year. Yeah, so obviously it was a federal election this year. That's going to be that's going to be hell, That, that does good. seem like the uh, highlight of 2019. It is hot iron for a takesmith. Will, in fact, be the 2019 election. Yes, that, well, from a political, I mean, it will not be the actual F- highlight. Followed shortly the by the Burnaby by-election. Uh, that will be, as as announced this week, very soon. Yeah. Uh, February 26th, I believe. Um, and that promises to be quite a time, and uh, we can certainly discuss that <laughs> at some point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But uh, we want to talk about sort of in advance of this uh, this election. There's also a couple other elections this year. There's obviously Alberta coming up very soon in uh, in the spring. Uh, Prince Ed- the highly anticipated Prince Edward Island election. Will the Greens sweep the island? Uh, that is actually kind of interesting, and maybe we can talk about what's going on. It's, that's not on the agenda. We, no? we wrote okay. out the agenda. The Greens well, aren't on the agenda it. this time. It's kind of interesting. I think at least in, in uh, New Brunswick and PEI, there's something to talk about. Uh, the Greens emerging as the de facto party of the the left opposition to the governing and recently governing liberals. Um, so you know we, that could be interesting, but perhaps another time. Um, <laughs> and then we have the federal election, obviously in October, and then there will be a Newfoundland election shortly after that, followed by Manitoba and Saskatchewan uh, next spring. So a lot of elections in our future here. Yeah, do you want to go through any of the other events of this coming year? The G7, the high-level NATO meetings, just just run through every single one of them. Yeah, let's no, let's not do that. <laughs> um, so in in anticipation of that, I think we wanted to take sort of a, of a broad view this year. Perhaps talk about the drawbacks of both sides, um, and in 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 honor of uh, McLean's uh, new tumble cover is it did that what they called it tumble cover i don't think it's tumble i think it was another word yeah but what? the one cover on the front one cover on the back is that is that what it's supposed to be that could be a tumble you could you could say that's a tumble right you tumble it over and it's the other one anyway so mclean's published it's the flippy cover like what, what are you yeah, going that would, for that here sound juvenile so <laughs> can't have that i'll, I'll let a i'll let a tan lead us in on this This special project was conceived after watching social media ignite with anger following two recent editions of Maclean's. We photographed Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland for our post-NAFTA issue with the headline, You're Welcome, Canada. Cue indignant partisan outrage. I'm not going to read the rest of it. Yeah, no, I was going to say this is going to get really (laughs) painful. They they did the same thing with the Doug Ford, etc. cover uh, called The Resistance. People were also mad about that. So, okay. Right there, if you're starting with, people got mad at us on Twitter for, like, kind of, I mean, you know, people just kind of get mad on Twitter, and if you're, like, if you respond to every instance of people getting mad on Twitter with, like, we must get to the the roots of this deep national sickness, I think you're, like, kind of missing the forest for the trees a little bit, but, you know, such is life, whatever, people, people get mad about things. Um... So this this was followed by like they posted this. I actually, for the record, or actually, you know what? No, you know what? Keep keep leading us in here. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna get us incredibly sidetracked. Don't Go ahead. don't worry, we'll get to it all. Okay, so it is it is in fact a tumble cover. So there's there's the two different covers, 
And there's two main pieces, one by Shannon Proudfoot, a columnist at McLean's, and similarly John Geddes. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of sort of periphery pieces by Jen Gerson, by Andrew McDougall, uh, Terry Glavin has one, Paul Wells has one, there's there's a bunch of them. Yeah. Uh, altogether, it's like seven or eight articles um, that all focus on, not really left-right, yeah. it's more... That's kind of like... Big L liberal and big L conservative, which big is... Big C conservative. <laughs> you said big L conservative. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, big C conservative. Um, which is sort of the initial problem with like the entire thing is they frame liberals as left, which well, and conservatives as right as like the entire and like you know what I I and they had one editor who said online most people's experience of politics is broadly that and fair enough I I agree that is most people's sort of experience with with politics is that the liberals and to some degree the NDP and the Greens are the left and the conservatives are the right and that's sort of the beginnings and ends of political discussion I think though as like a magazine that like does serious political analysis you, you your your mission is not to confirm the the biases yes, and sort if, of stunted narratives that voters tell themselves if, but instead if, to challenge the readers and broaden the analysis well, let me give it an analogy here if you're a chef at a restaurant you say well most people like the canned green beans that is why i'm serving the canned green beans no, this is a horrible decision. Like, the idea yeah. is not to serve what most people like or how most people understand it, if that's, in fact, correct yeah. or incorrect, rather. Yeah, you want, you want to actually have some challenging analysis and maybe take on popular narratives instead of just reinforcing them. Any, any yeah. of these things. So there were... Um, before. Do you want to talk about the two big pieces before? Yeah, let's. I guess we'll start with that, eh? How about I talk about the right-wing one sure, and talk about the left-wing sure, one? Sure, go ahead. So the right-wing one is, I mean, it's Shannon Proudfoot um, is, is the main piece. Proud feet. Um, and Proud it, says we'll get that. Go ahead. <laughs> and I mean, the most of the article is, I mean, the article overall is fine. It talks about um, different shifts within the conservative party, some of the different divides and cleavages that are happening. Yeah. Uh, in reference to, you know, Maxime Bernier versus Andrew Scheer. Um, I mean, it does a lot of description. There's not a ton of analysis in it. Um, and what analysis there is, it isn't really the authors. It's outsourced um, to David Hurl. Uh, Hurley. Sorry, David Hurley. just went over this. <laughs> just went over this. <laughs> to David Hurley. And uh, at the end, it goes to James Moore a little bit. And I former think... Former industry minister. Former industry minister, uh, president of UNBC or chancellor of UNBC. Um, and I think both of their comments were spot on, but the piece itself didn't really come to any sort of definitive conclusion. It was, it was more descriptive than anything. To talk about James Moore... James Moore... James Moore. You really have trouble with a very simple <laughs> two-syllable name there. <laughs> James Moore's... Um, comments in the end. He, he was channeling a Harvard professor when discussing um, why this sort of dynamic is happening that's described throughout the piece, um, which is about the polarization of the right wing. Um, and I think his comments are, you know, reasonably insightful, that there's obviously societal shifts happening. Um, they they reference the death of bowling leagues as well as volunteerism. Yeah, the, the Robert Putnam bowling alone thesis, which yeah. is heavily leaned on by a lot of people these days. Yes. Yeah, and the the fact that you know the the community structures that have been be it the church or the bowling league. Yeah. Um, that have been a you know a staple part of community life in Western society. Yeah. 
have eroded, leaving leaving yeah. Western society and maybe the right wing in particular as a more individualistic society than it perhaps can, has been in the past. Can I comment very briefly on just that thesis? I find that often what's left out of that analysis is any consideration of why that might be. So why might it's, it be? It's sort of taken ex post facto, um, or as a yeah, I don't know, ex post facto is not the right term, uh, but you know what I mean. Sort of taken as a given. Uh, I think that a lot of it has to do with structural changes in the economy, frankly. Uh, and of course, I'm the, the dirty, you know, materialist Marxist here, but uh, I think that's like if you look at social changes, uh, people moving more for jobs, right? Like people are more and working longer a lot of times, like especially now that we, you know, it's sort of twenty four seven connectivity we are it's often observed that people are like working way longer hours um frankly i think part of it is physical isolation i think suburbs are have become places where people do not foster a sense of community because they drive everywhere which is less well i I suppose that's embedded in the economy too right the sort of built environment is is an economic decision in many ways so i find that 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 roots root causes sort of thing is, is never really looked at hard. It's like, why are these civic institutions let, declining? And well, Let me present present a counter. Can I just recommend one really good book slash piece of evidence for uh, my theory? No. Uh, you should read City... <laughs> you ask me you sh- to tell you, you should, now. You should read City, Urbanism, and Its End, uh, which is about New Haven, Connecticut, and the sort of changes in its both built environment and uh, economy over the last century and a half. It is really, really good, and I think... Um, gives a really good detailed explanation of like why this change in, in civic institutions kind of came about. I'm going to present a, not, not to dismiss yours entirely. I, I think there's certainly likely to be elements of that. Um, I'm going to present a counter thesis. Sure. Um, I think mine has to do with entertainment. I think that's a much weaker, like, I, I see what you mean is that people like watch more TV and like are on the internet. Well, it's once upon a time, uh, circa 50, 100, 25 years ago, whatever metric, I think all of those yeah. frankly are, are correct. The cost to entertain oneself was substantially higher, substantially mm-hmm. higher prior to the advent of televisions in the house, color TVs or the various limitations um, that existed in their early stages. Where we are today, let's use gaming consoles as an example. People are able to entertain themselves for literally, yeah, like cents for per hour, yeah. thousands of hours. Where the community elements and the bonding, be it the church group or yeah. the after school, whatever, um, was more heavily leaned upon. And where this is going, and I think this this can't be denied. Um, or or is an interesting point, is to talk about the advent of virtual reality. And when virtual reality ramps up, the ability to entertain oneself in an, you know, in an alternate reality um, will increase dramatically. Yeah, so this is the holodeck is the last invention of mankind theory. Yeah. So I think that's really poorly borne out by statistics, if you look at it closely. Uh, if you look at like... Do tell. No, because this is actually... So we both listen to the weeds. Um, mm-hmm. Vox's podcast on policy, and this is a discussion that Ezra Klein and Matt Iglesias have had multiple times, and Ezra leans to my side of being a little skeptical about this and wanting to look at the bigger economic picture. I think he, like, will often sort of post jokingly of looking at, like, amount of video games played, basically, like, self-reported hours, and coinciding, like, a huge spike after the 2008 crash, and saying, wow, video games must have gotten really good in 2008. Um... 
right? Like, that's kind of, that's what I mean. Like, and I, I don't remember, I unfortunately cannot remember the economic term for a good that you consume more of as you have less money, but video games are one of those. Sure. In that, like, if you, because as you say, like, we live in a society where um, if you don't have a job or if you don't have a good paying job, you are made to feel bad about it, right? Like, structurally, if you don't have a productive job or employment like that is seen as a bad thing and like maybe it is maybe it isn't but that's kind of like how like i I remember when i was unemployed for for some time after getting my master's um and then moving to saskatchewan i was working on and off different jobs but it was really depressing and i played a lot of video games because it like takes your mind off of like your life frankly like kind of being bad uh and now that i have a job and like don't feel bad about it as much i like video games are something i do like you know once or twice a week, a couple hours, and, like, that's kind of it, because I have, like, other shit going on. Let, let but, me use... Uh, no, I know I, you play a lot of Fortnite. Let, but... <laughs> <laughs> let me use a counteract, though. Um, when I was unemployed, I played a lot of Overwatch, and now that I am employed, I, I play, play a lot, lot of Fortnite, Fortnite yeah. and not that much to change. Yes, well, yeah, I mean, you're the guy who, who comes home at lunch to play Fortnite and eat a <laughs> mac and cheese, so perhaps you're still 14 in some ways. <laughs> or, not a mac and cheese, sorry, a grilled cheese. I should have, uh, I shouldn't have, uh... Well, it, it depends yeah. on the day. Sometimes yeah. mac and cheese. Sometimes, sometimes, cheese, sometimes yeah. it's grilled cheese. Fair or enough. Annie's. Or well, Annie's is good. You got to get your organic good. stuff. So we once again we really launched ourselves right off track there. <laughs> but uh, what we're we talking about? We're talking about uh, oh yeah, Robert Putnam, and that was with the conservatives thing. Yeah, go ahead. You want to go back into that or? Um no. So I mean, I'll leave that one there. Um, to skim briefly other pieces that were included. I didn't. I didn't read Terry Glavin, so I mean, you can. You didn't miss on much. That one. You didn't miss much. Uh, I know it had you seething with rage. Um, Paul Wells had an interesting one. It was sort of the histor- historical basis of polarization. Yeah, like are we actually Canada? more polarized now? And he was like, eh. I mean, like if you look at the past, and this is what he points out, like political violence is really like frankly at pretty much an all time low, um, or at least like a near a historical low like probably feel maybe a little less 10 15 years ago but like compared to you know ku klux klan being really active uh god what was the other one oh yeah well like i mean violence in quebec between you know like separatist uh terrorist groups etc so my pushback to this would be i mean between the historical examples um and modern day crime rates broadly violence broadly and all of yeah. Colin, has, Colin Steven Pinker <laughs> has, has decreased dramatically, yeah, yeah, yeah. especially the 90s onwards, right? Yeah. Um, so my question, and I don't, I don't have an answer, um, would be whether or not polarization is now disproportionate to the amount of violence we have in our society. Yeah. That, that is to say, back then there are examples of, you know, the Klan and the FLQ, but was society much more violent as a whole back then that accounts for some of that? as opposed to our relative level of polarization much higher and, and even political violence, although there's not, you know, a ton of it, or maybe more accurate, like hate crimes, uh, the graffiti on yeah, churches. Which has increased, yeah. Which we're seeing increases in now is how has that changed yeah. compared to sort of general rates over yeah. time? Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. I just thought that the the historical perspective was quite useful. <sighs> Especially because people, I think, often do forget. Like, people often say that elections used to be, you know, fought on policy. And it was always... And it's like, if you look at historical political ads, that kind of stuff, and, like, campaigns, they are, like, 
as bad or worse as anything we do now. There, Often worse. There the used to back be you go. so much ministerial responsibility. The prime minister was... Yeah, like, most nostalgia is bullshit, yes. just in general. But, like, political nostalgia may be more so than, than anything else. What did, what did you think of Paul Wells? I mean, in that piece, it, it's not really his main thesis, but he, he notes it towards the end. Um, he does a partial job in linking it to fundraising and modern day fundraising. I have said this many, many times. Post. Yeah, no, I, I actually agree that as we've moved to an individualized fundraising model instead of a public funding one, um, and away from the sort of like corporate big money funding where you didn't really have to reach out to individual, individuals. So, yeah, so to well, be so clear. I'll, yeah, and I'll, I'll clarify. So before, before like recently, what we had was a model like recently. 2006, in, yeah, roughly. Last, 10, 15 years, we had a model where uh, corporations, unions, et cetera, could give big amounts of money. Uh, and that meant that fundraising was basically walking around Bay Street or union headquarters with a paper bag and letting people just put money into it. Uh, the conservatives passed changes to fundraising that made it so that only individual donations were allowed, plus public some public funding. Uh, the public funding was kind of a crutch, and now those have been removed, and now it's just individual fundraising. And when you do individual fundraising, you are really like, you have to hit people's lizard brains. And I've often said that each party, uh, their supporters are psychologically different uh, to some extent, and they require different buttons being pushed. I find that the conservative button is often outrage uh, or being mad or being scared. Uh, and it's basically like, can you believe Omar Cotter or whatever we're mad about. Sure. Um, and it's, you know, it, it, they really do have to like make their supporters mad to get money out of them. Uh, the liberals, I find trade on a kind of clubbiness where you give money to be part of the club, to be in on it. Like that's sort of like that sort of being inside is kind of the sentiment that a lot of fun, uh, liberal fundraising uh, trades off of. Uh, the NDP in for... general, I find they actually have a tough time with this because, uh, and this is actually, I think, because uh, it's for Jagmeet Singh's cooking, right? Yes. Uh, no, but but more seriously, I think a lot of this um, is about cultural identity and the sense that where you look at the conservatives, they're able to trade off of stuff that makes people who culturally identify as right wing and sort of identify with right signifiers of, of right wing affiliation, make them mad, liberal, same thing. And this is why cultural war issues are so bad for the NDP is that the NDP actually has, I think, the most... Um, diverse base in terms of having people who do not agree with each other on culture war issues. I think the liberals and conservatives have very, very much sorted themselves into each side of a culture war where the, the NDP, because of their, their sort of reliance on voters both in downtown Toronto and places like downtown Toronto, and also small cities like Windsor, London... So, so um, give me a culture war issue. Omar Cotter. I think that's a great, I, that's a really easy example because I, I brought it up just, just is, now. Is but the NDP radically divided on Omar Cotter? You would be surprised how many older blue collar union workers were pretty mad about um, the uh, uh, settlement. Yes. I mean, that is one of the main cleavages. Well, that's what I'm saying is that basically you can take that issue and extrapolate it across just about anything. And the older blue collar parts of the NDP get mad about very different things than the younger white collar professional parts get mad about. I, I do think there there is, and because of the sort of institutional history of the NDP, obviously there, the voices of those blue collar workers get heard a lot. But how is that cleavage? So 
I, I understand that. And and when I when I look at the NDP, there's the blue collar working in northern uh, northern Ontario, yeah. union prairies, and yeah. and they're yeah they they have the roots in the NDP and in the unions, and that is why they vote NDP. But culturally, they're more akin to conservative. They look a lot more like a conservative voter, just on uh, ethnic and like all, uh, all social values, yeah. all all the rest yep. of it. But within the Conservative Party, there's a similar cleavage between social conservatives and everyone else. Yep, no, that's true. And it's the same um, with the Republicans in the U.S. And so how is it... So what I'm asking to defend is the bait or the basis that NDP, that within the NDP, it is more pronounced than it is within the Conservative Party in sure, terms, because of, in I terms think of the culture, I, I, the cleavages in the culture because war. Because I think culture war issues are more motivating for people compared to economic issues uh, for partisan affiliation and voting behavior these days. I, th- I don't think that's always been true, but I think if you look at the last... Like, this is kind of the same reason why you have um, in the U.S. a Conservative Party that is extremely libertarian on economics, despite the interests and frankly like expressed preferences of much of its voting base because they are lockstep on the culture war stuff and the cultural stuff is more driving voter behavior because it's easier to understand easier to get mad about easier to feel emotionally connected to uh where like frankly i basically think like the the, if the ndp can reverse that polarity and uh basically polarize people on economic issues rather than cultural issues they would do a lot better uh they have a hard time doing that um, and that's that's like a big question for them to answer is how they can do that. Uh, but yeah, like if you have a party that's split on culture war issues, but united on economic issues and everyone cares more about culture than economics, you're going to have a problem, right? Like fundamentally. And I think if you look at the decline of center left parties and social democratic parties kind of throughout the world, uh, the sort of Western democratic world, that's the dynamic you see playing out. It's the increasing prevalence of sort of cultural, cultural issues uh, as the dominant ones and the ones that drive voting behavior. That's my take. All right, let's get back to the claims. Yes. <laughs> so I, 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 I'll take us into the what's wrong with yeah, the left piece. Go for it. So as someone who, who identifies very consciously with the left, uh, I was, was very surprised to read an article that was 98% about uh, things I agree with about what's wrong with the Liberal Party, which is to say, you know, they're, they're kind of smug. I think as we just talked about, they really do like what it's about these days is presenting uh, symbolic gestures on culture war issues and values issues that people, that their supporters are pretty lockstep about and motivating them. Uh, I like agree with that. I think that that's true. I think, and increasingly they are making people angry uh, by increasing the valence of cultural issues. And like, I think it's very much like the, the whole point about polarization is true. People are, I think more polarized because parties have realized that they can really mobilize people on these culture war issues and that's what they're going to do because they need to have money to run elections and that's how you get money is you get people mad uh or like make them feel inside the tent uh in the liberals case so in that sense i think that's correct and i think it's broadly fine i just thought that the complete lack of analysis of anything else that isn't the liberal party i mean is is just to miss the the forest or not to really miss the forest of the trees but to just ignore Hey, like, you know, I think people make jokes about the NDP not doing great right now. And like, you know, I think they're, that's that's another conversation. But like, it, it does exist. It is a party that like has existed for a long time and has received billions of votes and like governs several provinces. And to completely leave it out of the conversation there. And I think, like I said about um, green parties, 
the Green Party in BC holds a balance of power. You have increasingly powerful or significant Green parties in in Eastern Canada. Like that's a conversation that I think this sh- like wait 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 are, is you, here. are, are like, you taking credit for the Green parties being on the left now? Is is that right? No, going? actually, but I would. I don't think that. I was like, are you throwing out your Tories with bicycles? <laughs> uh, no, well, actually, I think there's a big difference. I think Andrew Weaver, absolutely, of the BC Green Party, is a you know Tories with bikes, like like par excellence, like voting against card check for unions is like classic like lib shit but like the easter east coast green parties are legitimately quite left-wing um because they came out of like mostly just they don't really have this kind of like liberal electoralist baggage that the the western green parties do so it's a whole different ball game there what i think is interesting with that thesis of uh the greens being you know the the tories with bikes is that when you look at the Scott Gilmores of the world, right? Yes. Who want a new spiffy conservative party. Yeah. That is more focused on environmental issues, not focused on the culture war. Well, they're, they're like, it's libertarians, right? They, they want a party that doesn't have the, the right wing cultural baggage, but that is libertarian or right wing on economic issues. Yeah. I, I wouldn't necessarily say libertarian because that presents many other. I don't know, a, a lot of other baggage. Free market oriented. But, but sort of, you know, the, yeah. the standard red Tory. Um, well, okay. The, the standard you, you red know, Tory yeah. formula. So the, the question really blue, becomes. Blue liberal, I think, is actually more accurate. The, yeah. the, how, I think red however, Tories are communitarian social conservatives. Uh, which, yeah. which is not how people often talk about it, but that's the origin of the term. Either way, I, th- I think what's interesting, though, is that if your thesis about the Green Party is, I mean, they're obviously not homogenous across Canada. No, they're not at all, yeah. But being right-wing on many issues, um, then it seems like that that's the answer for the uh, squishy middle between the conserv- the, the yeah. right-wing conservatives, or sorry, the left-wing conservatives and the right-wing liberals, yeah. is to go towards the Green Party. But and they we, are we reliably... See, we they don't are, see that sort of the interesting, attraction yeah. to the policies. I think the interesting thing about the Green Party federally is that while they are surprisingly centrist on economic issues, and I actually find their actual environmental platform a little ill-defined... Uh, it's ironic. Yeah, it is actually. I, I agree. Uh, they are very, very like, quote unquote, left wing on what? Yeah, this is. I don't really agree with a lot of these positions, but like, I think people associate the kind of like Wi-Fi kookery and like anti-vax kookery <laughs> with the left for some reason. Uh, and I agree that for, there's for kind of reasons. there's kind of more of it on. The, for, like, for I agree. Like it's hippie stuff, right? Like so, fair enough. But. I think that's what turns the Scott Gilmore, Scott's Gilmore of the world, off the Green Party. The the wind turbines, the the yeah. low frequency radiation yeah, yeah, yeah. is going to yeah. exactly right. That kind of stuff, I think, really turns them off. So, but to to pivot back to, to the piece, I think like it doesn't do the job, right? As you say, it's it, it is a good analysis of what is wrong with the federal Big L Liberal Party, but not really a good analysis of anything beyond that. And I think a more you know humble or constrained view of what the article seeks to achieve would have been better but that of course wouldn't have fit in well with the sort of uh polarization is killing us blah 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 uh okay so that's that's that can i comment on uh one of the ancillary pieces no you you ask me questions i say no no it's it's really more just saying i'm going to comment on the ancillary piece and then you you say yes and but the idea is that i'm doing it like it's a 
Anyway, um, so Anne Kingston wrote a piece about uh, why the terms left and right aren't useful. And I was a little baffled by it because I, I find people say this a lot and I never really see it articulated all that gracefully. I've seen people talk about the, the drawbridge up, drawbridge down uh, view. The Economist was big on this, that there's a sort of like elite small l liberal drawbridge up thing that's you know quote-unquote globalist uh you're gonna have to explain this a little (laughs) more clearly okay no so basically when you hear about the outdatedness of left and right often it's in explicitly very liberal terms which is to say that you have a liberal small liberal side that sees itself as as drawbridge down which is to say welcoming open internationalist in its orientation about free markets etc and then you have a drawbridge up sort of counter movement, to use a Carl Polanyi's term, that is more skeptical, uh, more inward looking, um, and the economic issues don't really figure in as closely. It's kind of how a lot of people discuss populism in this sort of nebulous term. I think actually that's really like, if you want, what comes to mind when I say populist is what the economist would have six years ago called drawbridge up mentality. Um, but at any rate, I think she says something really that really made me raise my eyebrows um, when she says, uh, thinking in terms of a horizontal left-right spectrum is not only outdated, but contains implicit biasing and ignoring how hierarchies and systems dominate politics, economics, and social life, which to me is like what she just described is like basic left-wing analysis of how like hierarchies, systems, and economies dominate social life. Like that, that is like very basic like Marx through to Gramsci kind of like looking at, you know, base and super, base and superstructure kind of stuff. Like it's really core like, the periphery. for me, that, that that is like very much the core of like a left and right wing dichotomy is like, for me, I conceive of a left and right as egalitarian versus hierarchical. And well, when you're talking about hierarchies, that's explicitly what you're talking about. So I found that a little like, odd. Let, let's be clear. When people use left and right wing, these, these are shorthand. They're not intended to be detailed analysis no, yeah. of, of anyone's political perspectives. Sure. Like, you take the note, like, everyone who's done a poli-sci 101 class yeah. has seen the different ways that political ideologies can be Hor- plotted. Horseshoe, horseshoe to fish hook. <laughs> horseshoe, fish hook, four quadrant. Like, yeah. t- take your pick. Yeah. So I, I think the idea yeah, that, yeah, sure. you know, oh, we, we should revolutionize the left-right spectrum. Oh, yeah. it's, it's no longer valid. It contains implicit biases. Yeah. You're yes, not the first thing to think about Everyone yeah. knows but you know this. What? I actually do find, like, quite honestly, that looking at it as a... a like the easiest two-dimensional access you can have is is egalitarian versus hierarchical. I find that that actually like really captures basically a lot of uh, political debates. And I, I really like if you strongly disagree, I'd like to hear from you because I am interested to see if other people think of a two-dimensional access that is more compelling. I've heard freedom versus equality, but I personally find that the way a lot of people conceive freedom is the freedom to become very rich in the market, which to me is just in a belief that there is a natural hierarchy of talent that must be allowed to play itself out through the market and it's hierarchical uh people who are very skilled etc must be rewarded for this uh so i don't know i think that's that's my take but yeah so that's that i i thought that was an interesting piece because as you say many people have tried to grapple with this and i don't think it did it all that effectively uh she argues that there's a, a facts versus non-facts side which kind of made me roll my eyes a little um 
once again, this is kind of the, the populism thing. I'm, where, I'm, I'm cringing. Yeah, you do cr- visibly cringe. He's like, here's... Well, oof. this leads me into, I think, the, the third companion piece to this that didn't get written, which is what's wrong with the center. Well, our, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's wrong with the center maybe is what they wrote, but they opted to settle out what's wrong with the left. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fair, actually. But, but, like, the facts versus the non-facts side is, I mean, it gets in, oh, God, there's there's so much baggage to every <laughs> single one of these issues, right? Because it gets into, like, the fact-checking of... Uh, Three Pinocchios, sir! <laughs> and, and the problems with fact-checking. And if we're going to talk about, you know, how misleading the Conservative Party is versus how misleading the Liberal Party is. Yeah. Like, in the talk, talking points or talking points... They're never intended yes. to be and of course, forthright, yeah. um, communicating the flaws and benefits. Like, and political like they're communication. All, they're all misleading. Yes, and political like, communication, I think to encap- the, the saying that I've said before on the show, but encapsulates this perfectly, is when you have the facts, pound the facts. Uh, when you have yes. the law, pound the law. Uh, when you have neither the facts nor the law, pound, pound the, the table. table. Yeah, it, it really, like, that's how political communication works. But it's like, can, can you pick and choose things from... Every single party that are wrong, misleading, factually incorrect. Probably. And the answer is yes. Yeah. And and you can do it. And when it comes to fact checkers, yes, you can pick a party that, you know, for whatever reason your bias are there, you're gonna you're gonna pick on them. But there is no real way, shy of fact checking all the statements of all the yeah. MPs or all the press releases or whatever metric you use. Um, to to quantify which is being the most yeah. like it's all just yeah I mean it's, okay. it's trying it's trying to make something that's objective yeah where objectivity so, is incredibly hazy I think in the realm of sort of normal politics there is a rough and tumble element to communications that everyone is gonna you know tell some whoppers every now and then or at least you know torque things to fit their their narrative frame which. I don't think people should get too exercised about like the whoppers maybe but like it is what it is. Um, I do think, and this is, I think, something that, like, if we're talking about the sort of growth uniquely now, is that there are, I think, closed information ecosystems to a point that is unusual looking at a broad historical perspective, because I think we only have the technology that has enabled this more recently, Uh, perhaps with the one exception being the early modern period. Uh, when you have the sort of birth of the printing press, which people are like, oh, that really enabled access. It did, but it also very much enabled the spread of like essentially what we would call now a propaganda network. Sure. Where you have Catholics reading Catholic things, Protestants reading Protestant things, or if you look at the English Civil War, you know, every single kind of like bizarre sect reading its own yeah. very well produced pamphlet series. Uh, and I think really if I had to pick a, a, an analog to our sort of information environment, it would be that kind of like 17th century uh, pamphlet and with strong people having strong identities. Uh, yeah. This, this is literally the, the pamphleteers yes. and the partisan presses yes. and the, the history of, yes. but I think it is much easier to not run it. And, and you know, okay. I say this it used to be that like, you really would be socially, uh, like if we're talking about the pamphleteer age of the 17th century or even the sort of like partisan press age of the 18th and 19th and to some degree 20th, there was a lot of like social segregation uh, and, you know, what the Dutch would call pillarization across the, the late 19th, early 20th centuries. And that's that's it. those are, I think are parallels. But I think the sort of like speed um, and the immediacy of being able to get this stuff online is really, really powerful. 
So if you look at, like, for instance, in the U.S., the QAnon conspiracy theory, which is one of my absolute favorite things. Don't, but don't, it is... Don't call it a conspiracy theory, <laughs> But it is, like, magical thinking in the realm that I think we really have not seen in some time. I guess, the, you know, if you look at the, the 60s and 70s, the John Birch Society in the U.S. was kind of along these lines, where it was just, like, pretty total batshit. But once again, that's kind of, that's itself kind of a pamphleteer kind of ecosystem so i don't know I, I think i think we do have to be concerned about um the sort of information streams more than we have in the past uh there was a really good report this last year i don't remember the organization unfortunately i'll see if i can find it and put it in the notes um about you radicalization on youtube uh where this recommendations engine there sort of steers people towards conspiratorial or extreme content uh, um, yes the, yeah the you start watching one video and then Four suggested videos yeah. later, so you're... Th this is where the facts, non-facts thing is kind of unhelpful. Because I think, you know, we both disagree substantially on the sort of, like, left-right axis uh, to a fairly large extent. Um, but we both kind of try to, like, not be totally out there in terms of, like, lizard people stuff, QAnon stuff, that kind of thing. Uh, and, yeah, we, like, have... De like, if you put, but, like, in charge of a government, we would not agree on how to run it. Like, it, it would not work. Um, I would fire you. Yeah, that's fair. That's the first I would, thing I would do. Yes. Um, fair enough. But yeah, like I just don't think that that's necessarily a useful way of looking at it. I think it is an interesting dynamic in sort of how political communication, how political identities are formed in the like very rapid age of information. But yeah, I don't know how useful it is as a central dividing line. I actually think it's it's basically irrelevant as a central dividing line because it's really relegated mostly to the fringes for good reason. Because I think most of the people who get very invested in these things are mostly cranks who don't see a lot of other people. Um, I, I think actually to speak of the QAnon thing and talking about how it's very socially isolating, there was a great thread in a QAnon Facebook group I think some time ago about how no people in the group's families didn't want them there for Thanksgiving and they were posting pictures of their like incredibly sad bologna sandwiches with Cheetos <laughs> that they were having. Um, so that tells you something. Um, so people are lonely and I think that's once again, if we're talking about the bowling alone thing, I think we have an incredibly isolating society and social environment and built environment and economies and that's all a thing. Let, let me but, just yeah. Let me just take a moment to to build upon this this facts conversation that we're having and, and bridge back to our frame of reference typically, which is Canadian parliamentary politics, right? Mm -hmm. The Liberal Party um made part of their brand evidence-based policy the party of science yeah evidence-based po policy the party of science yeah the presumption going into this is that like it, it almost sells this scientific th this myth of public policy as this this absolute that there is you know there's the right policy and the wrong policy mm -hmm. Not that every single policy is a series of trade-offs. Yeah. That finding the optimal policy is, I mean, essentially impossible in most circumstances. Yeah. Um, and so, while evidence is useful and can help inform your policy, yeah. I think way too many people buy into right versus wrong. Yes. And I think it's within... Because I think for the most part, we have... Like, if you look at, like, the Economist Party kind of discourse... Yes. Uh, it, it is... A framework of like if you for instance like yeah Stephen Gordon who is a, he's a smart economist but like 
he, I think, very much buys into, like, there's a right way to do policy. And the policy is a sort of what I call neoliberal redistributivism in the sense that, like, this is the optimal policy for post-tax redistribution of income and wealth to people who have less of it. And on, like, his metrics, I think he's correct, right? But I disagree with the political analysis that gets him to say that that framework is the best one to analyze politics in. Sure. Right? And that's just, like, at that point, we're just, like, we're not talking to each other, right? Like... <laughs> or at least I, I actually find it's easier for people not within the sort of consensus framework to speak to people in the consensus framework because I know that I'm speaking a different language so I can make an effort to learn another one. I find people in that consensus who don't really see it, you know, the whole fish can't see the, the water, the swimming and thing, have a lot more trouble getting that because they just have not been exposed or do not think serious other modes of political analysis that aren't theirs to, to to build on that point um i was at a tax policy oh, conference yeah. um er, earlier this year well last year uh well yeah you're, you're <laughs> right it, it was not four days ago yeah. um and and one of the speakers it, it was a panel discussion and i don't remember who the speaker was um he was a guy from the montreal economic institute I don't no no, this, no that, a, that's a him. that's a different uh, uh okay. a different story altogether um, but this guy was from one of the senior con- tax consultancies in Canada, KPMG or EY or a- any of these ones. I don't, I don't remember which. And his the, the thesis to his comments were that uh, tax policy should be the same as monetary monetary policy. In that monetary policy, there's sort of this central bank independence and. Yeah, this consensus around the independence of the central bank and that politicians should not comment on it and that it it is above the fray. Yeah, and he felt that tax policy should be conducted by a cabal of tax consultants <laughs> who could then decide the best tax rate at any given time, and it shouldn't be political because why is tax policy being political? That's like the best question I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, and, and this is what he honestly thought. Yeah, no, so I believe this it. is a guy with like likely fifty plus odd years of experience doing tax policy in Canada, and his the the summation of his beliefs came to being: this we we should be you know, philosopher kings of taxes in Canada. Yeah. And it's just like... Uh, yeah. And I, I'm sure he's someone who would fall in the evidence-based policy camp. Like, yeah. we know. We know what the most efficient tax rate is for yeah. this, 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 and this. But it's devoid of all the other Actual political, political analysis, social yeah. analyses yeah. that are core to democracy. Yeah. Keep in mind that every single policy advisor in every single field would feel much more comfortable about doing their job if they were unconstrained by the messiness that is Western democracy. Yeah. So that that whole discussion, I think, is is a bit of the subtext. If we want to talk about what's wrong with the center, right? That whole notion of an active aversion to the messiness of actual politics right of basically the notion i think this really is the kind of like if i'm saying what is wrong with the center i think is that it is it is unable to look outside of itself it is unable to internalize or take seriously critiques of itself because it is i think there's a a tendency and there's sort of like the logical chain of reasoning is the centrist policy like the policies that are to the set are moderate are by definition right and if the policies are by definition right then others are by definition wrong and then you can't, like, actually take seriously the notion that, like, 
there are competing interests, which I think is, is a, like, I've talked about why polarization actually is, like, not necessarily undesirable before on the show, so I won't belabor the point too much. But, like, the notion of, of politics as competing interests versus politics as management are two very different ways of thinking about politics, and I don't think that the center is able to think outside of the management frame, uh, because many of people who identify as centrists are themselves managers. I think that probably <laughs> doesn't help or doesn't hurt or help, I guess, actually, either way. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of, I think there's a lot of self-searching that I think that the broad Canadian center should do in terms of why people are looking for other explanations, ridiculous or not, uh, right? Like, I don't think people look for, for conspiracy theories because they think that they have a they have a well reasoned critique of you know optimal tax rates. It's because they they feel that there's something empty about a political vision that is being sold to them or in their lives, which I think is you know when you talk about politics as you know embedded in society, that's that's the way it is, right? Like you can't get away from that, and I think the center is invisibilizes social context, and that's a really really big problem for them. And I think why there's a lack of trust of well like centrist institutions that people have taken as authoritative for for a long time okay let's let's leave this conversation there because this is you know not our typical podcast uh fodder i think we've gone a little past our material that was good though that was a good discussion so i, I don't regret it uh people can feel free to, to yell at us on twitter etc we will happily read your your comments and and not say, wow, I think the reaction to the podcast episode really vindicates it uh, in the shittiest, snootiest way possible. And let's let's bridge to the Supreme Court decision, right? Yeah. Um, so the pre- Supreme Court made a decision um, just the ar- other day just the other day around the uh, ability of expats to cast votes in federal elections. Yes. And it declared... That they could, in fact, by a 5-2 decision. Are we missing two Supreme Court justices? I think it was 5-2. I don't, I don't remember. Do we have seven? I thought we had nine. I don't actually don't know. I, I think it was 5-2. I, I don't okay, know. Okay, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Anyways. Yeah. Um, our, our fact checker will... Hugo, where Hugo. are you? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I, I do know that there's two on the minority. And uh, apparently, um, from what I've read, the minority decision uh, or the minority report... report Opinion. Uh, Minority Report's a different thing. Yes. Opinion uh, was reasonably compelling. Um, and, God, we could easily take another 45 minutes to discuss all the things around this. Can, very quickly, though, I think let's just say that the Harper government had created... Or do you want to go further back than that? You're giving me Well, what, what were you going to say? I was going to say that uh, the Harper government had put in a provision where expat voting was limited to people who had been out of the country for less than five years. See, than five years, see this is one of the things that I don't know that that's true. I think this all stems from a 1993 yeah. uh, law by Chrétien. And is he Spanish now? Chrétien. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure why it came up in 2015. I don't know if it was challenged. Or that the Harper government had enforced it in was a it different way. Was it part of the, way. Renewal, the Unfair Elections Act or Defo Amendment? I, I, I don't it? think so. No? I think so. Because it was discussed a lot in that context. It came up in 2015. Donald Sutherland made a big uh, stink about it. And I think that might have been when legal challenges began. Okay. Um, but the Harper government ended up wearing a lot of it. And I'm actually yeah. not really sure how much they, they deserve did, yeah. to wear. This is one thing that I've not 
really ever had definitively yeah, so the an answer for one me. was prisoners, expats, and a couple other categories, right? No, I mean, so the, there's been an evolution of voting rights. Yeah. Um, in the seventies, if you were voting uh, versus the nineties. It was, it was a very different story, namely because when the charter came in, yeah. it gave you the right to, to vote, vote. Yes. Um, whereas previously the franchise was something to be extended to people, yeah. right? The default position was not that everyone has the right to right. vote. It was that the vote is sacred and you can vote and you can vote, yes. but you can't, you can't, you can't. And I guess by the time the charter came in, that had already been extended to the vast majority of people, though not quite everyone, I think. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think there was a, it was uh, status Indian people uh, had some limitations. I don't quite recall exactly what those were, but that was the... Uh, yeah. So so this is one area I was starting to research. Regrettably, I had enough time to fully research it. Um, but looking at the, the 91 commission, there was a royal commission that took up this topic, and they discuss how prisoners didn't have the right to vote at that time, mm -hmm. um, that people outside of the country, it was sort of inconceivable that they'd be able to vote, uh, although it was happening provincially, but federally, there just weren't the mechanisms to enable people to vote right. because, you know, technology wasn't there for it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's it's important to understand the historical context here a bit to see that the right to vote has, um, I mean, through legal uh, means, through legislative means, has evolved um, to where it is today with, you know, Supreme Court decisions being made on it. Um, but there's a couple other factors I'd like to discuss. One of the things that I think is most interesting about this is the relationship between the government fighting uh, in court to, to the Supreme Court, the Attorney General, um, against, so this would be the Liberal Attorney General, mm -hmm. um, against the right of expats to vote, Whilst simultaneously passing and the, the coming into force of C-76, mm -hmm. um, which is the liberal second major piece or second piece of uh, uh, Canada Elections Act uh, reform legislation, the first one yes, being... which included a provision that let expats vote. Correct. Despite simultaneously arguing before the courts that they should not. Yes. And I think this is one of the things to highlight here, that people overlook or don't understand very, very commonly when talking about the federal government fighting court cases. Mm -hmm. So the answer go, or the question is, why is the government fighting in court, expats can't vote? Well, the bill has, well, I guess the the fighting in court in the Supreme Court would have happened months and months ago, yeah. but, but the decision pending, well, the legislation had been tabled and was quickly yeah. working its way through the House of Commons and the Senate. And the answer is... Democracy deserves a defense. Yes. And what does that mean? It means that why, before statutory changes, the uh, government and the person of the attorney general should not presume the will of parliament. Correct. To make future changes. Yes. Yes. And, and so what it means is even if the government vehemently disagrees with something and your justice department comes to you and says, listen, there's a case here. We're going to have to litigate it. Yeah. It's basically above politics um, for the role of the attorney general to say, yes, we, we are going to do it. Yeah. Um, because what, what's, what's the, the alternative? 
The alternative is saying, no, we're not going to put forward a defense. Yeah. And we're going to undermine and undercut our laws that are on the books. Yeah. By not defending them in court. So, this which is... Which is? Outside of parliament, anti-democratic, circumvents the uh, legislative process entirely. So, I agree with you that it circumvents the legislative process. I don't necessarily agree that it's undemocratic. Uh, I... In the U.S., there is sort of a broad um, executive discretion to prosecute or not prosecute certain cases or uh, to litigate in the terms of in defense. So there, there is, uh, for instance, the ongoing um, Obamacare lawsuit yes, where the federal government is not providing a defense. And I, you know, I disagree with the content of that decision in the sense that I, I think that Obamacare broadly is, a, is an improvement on the status quo. But I also think that uh, the levers of government in terms of the actual administration and uh, civil service is in the hands of the government as cabinet. And I think if cabinet wants to make the decision or like thinks there is a collective decision among cabinet that this is a bad law that does not deserve defense, I think that is not necessarily outside the pale to say that they should be entitled to give that order and say don't defend this we don't think it's it's worthwhile and if the legislature has a problem with it then they have avenues to get rid of the government and i think that's fine i don't necessarily see that as quote-unquote undemocratic i I get your point and i I actually i I really don't i'm not taking this as very strong position i just think it's worth airing that there are other ways of approaching this exact topic and i don't think that they're without merit or at least not worth considering and yeah, I, I don't have a super, super, super strong opinion on this. I can see the case for democracy deserves a defense, but I can also see that you, sometimes you have a manifestly bad case and you don't think that it's worth the government's time, its expenditure, etc., to bring it, and that as a minister of the crown, that is your prerogative. I don't necessarily see that as indefensible. Leave it to the courts. The government has, for all intents and purposes, but in- I, infinite ability to fight things in court. Well, and yeah, defenses. and look, like... Often they are defending a bad position or, frankly, the Justice Department can cover its own ass a lot of the time. And I don't see deference to that principle as necessarily a key component of quote-unquote democracy. I think having, as you say, like taking it out, as we're talking with taking things out of politics, I don't necessarily think litigation strategy should always be outside of politics. I think that it, like, it is political and important and that they should have that discretion. Because he, here's, here's the fundamental equation, right? The equation is the executive, well, cabinet, um, for the most part, introduces laws to parliament. Legislators pass those laws, yeah. those law or bills, those bills become law. Those laws are then enforced yeah. through the all the, the yeah, entire yeah. system sure. um, until they are challenged by citizens and corporations sure. in various forms. And then it goes to the courts. Yeah. And the courts being uh, one of the important checks only work if you have defense, you have proponent and op- opponent. Right? Yeah. And so if if the government is choosing, not willy-nilly, but in key cases not to, it undercuts the power of parliament who has made these laws. And you you say parliament can depose 
government depends, minority versus majority situation. Sure. But even in a majority situation, if, if people really feel that it's serious, like, and that in this, it's, that's the thing, I think this should be a political conversation, right? I think that in some cases, the law is, like, clearly bad and indefensible, and the government should not feel that it necessarily has to defend it in every case, and that, that, that should be a power that is used sparingly, I, I think, frankly. I, like, I agree with your contention there. Just like the... Uh... The emergency powers to build the wall, right? Sure, exactly. But uh, no, I, I think like this is a it's a political moving target conversation, and that like I think adults can can disagree on the merits of different cases, and that if they really feel that a case is really without merit or that like it does not deserve a defense, I think that is like not an indefensible position to take in certain cases. Though I agree, I, I think that's a power that should be used pretty sparingly, and like I think the broad executive discretion in the U.S. on this is probably overbroad. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I don't think it's beyond the pale. To, okay. To know, what, what do you know about C-76? Uh, like bits and pieces of, of chunks. Of okay, I, I think it's worth, as we are now in 2019. Oh, can in, we, yeah, can we talk about the expat thing? Are we, are we going to get back to that? Or what, are we what, done with the expat what, thing? What part of the expat Just thing? like the, the actual merits of like whether expats should vote or not. Are we talking about that? If, I mean, can I give you my take? I'm scowling, but if if you want to, sure. sure. So my take is like, if you're a citizen, you can vote, and that's the end of the story. Okay, let me challenge that. Sure. What age do you become a citizen at? 18. Well, you become a citizen when you're born. Voting right at 18. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually so, started lowering it, but but here's yeah. here's the question, right? Um, the so the okay. the court ultimately ruled. I I haven't read through this that it was in, an unreasonable infringement of section two, right? Yeah, under that section one, it didn't meet the threshold to hit yeah. section one because there wasn't a substantial. Compelling. Yeah, that's the com- thing. Is com- I think yeah. compelling enough yeah, justification um, for the abridgment of the right. Well, the abridgment of the right, but also the abridgment of the right based on a five year term yeah, that, arbitrary yeah. on the arbitrariness of yeah. that. So the question then becomes is if we see, and uh, Emma McFarland made this point on Twitter, that he doesn't think that there are many compelling Section 1 reasons for infringing upon the right to vote or electoral yeah. rights. I broadly agree with that. Um, but the question then becomes is, what what about the age at which we can vote? How is 18 not as arbitrary as... Five years outside of the country. Yeah. Are, are these not similarly arbitrary? Well, no. I mean, I think they... Well, they... Okay. Are they similarly arbitrary? I actually don't think so. I think you... There's a lot of reasons that 18... Actually, like, 18 was chosen... Was it 21 before or was that just in the States? For voting? Yeah. I think it we I went know. straight to 18 here. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think there's a recognition that, like, once you've completed, like, it, like we sort of see the secondary education thing as, like... So, yes, it is reinforced. It is reinforced throughout our other structures for drinking, for... But that's well, my point, is that it's not half, wholly half arbitrary. It is based on a sort of social context, right? Like, and I get that, and I think it's easier to sort of see that. But five years... I mean, this is the thing. The, the concern of people who think that expats should not vote past a certain timeline is that they're no longer attached to the country and shouldn't have a say and aren't affected by the decisions etc i think the affected by the decisions thing is kind of wrong because decisions can very much affect expats um the thing about them being not connected to the country is that like if if citizens who live outside of the country do not feel connected to it they won't vote Right, like I just don't see it as a compelling reason to take away from people who do nurture a strong 
connection to their home country and want to continue participating in its political life to say that, well, other people won't feel that connection. Thus, we should take away the right from people who do feel it. Like, it just seems to get it backwards and that, like, we have a discretion of whether to vote or not. And, like, I think if we had mandatory voting, we could, like, revisit this conversation and say maybe there should be a different kind of mechanism or do what France does where you have specific expat seats um, for people who live in different... Yeah, really? so they have, yeah they do. Hmm. And, like, frankly, like, there are a million, over a million Canadians abroad. Right? I, I think people call, people call it the missing province. Between like, one and two million yeah, Canadians like, abroad. That's a lot of people. And like, frankly, we, we kind of do want to hear from them in some ways. So I, I just think like infringements of the, of the franchise for, for citizens who are of age, and we can talk about the, the right age, um, are really, really hard to justify. And I think people who don't feel connected to the country, don't feel connected to the institution, don't care about the politics, just won't exercise that right. And that's fine. That's their prerogative. I, I honestly don't have a strong opinion on this either way. Um, it's not something that gets me out of bed. Sure. Um, it's not anywhere in my list of top 150,000 priorities. Sure. Um, so, like, maybe I'm not the right person to defend the... I mean, I don't know any, like, I've, I guess I've never heard a strong articulation of the, like, they just don't feel connected, so we should take everyone's rights away. I once bridge. read, but I've never been able to independently verify that one of the reasons for this initially um, was in relation to um, individuals getting Canadian citizenship for political reasons. Sure. Uh, largely from Asian countries who came here as uh, to get citizenship as a Czech Mm-hmm. Um, or as a backup in case you know things went poorly in their home countries, sure. it, but, it served yeah. it served that purpose, and there were concerns about the influences of. So a lot a lot of those folks were people who were coming with the immigrant investor class thing. Uh, if we're talking about like especially Hong Kong, it was like yeah like, in the, well the er, early like, mid nineties. For me, it seems like if we're concerned about people buying Canadian citizenship, we should just not let people buy Canadian citizenship instead of abridging the rights of citizens to vote. How do you how do you prevent <laughs> people from buying canadian citizenship because like in like if we're concerned about the immigrant investor like program or sort of category of application just curtail or abridge that program i, I don't know that it, it was, just seems like it's the wrong target i don't know that it was specifically that i think it was more people coming getting residency yeah the three or five years or whatever the, the threshold was at that time and anyways this i'm, I'm not I, i'm putting a massive grain of salt on this as i've like a Malden flake. Yes. Sort of level. Like yeah. e- enormous. Yeah. Um, because I've never been able to find the research or the evidence to back this up. Um, this is something I read. It would have been in 2015 when the initial articles were coming sure. out about this. Um, and in my efforts to ver or to confirm this this week. Um, Similarly, still unable to find it. Yeah. You know, it's it's reasonably hard to find reporting from 1993 yeah. about what John Cotillian's motivations were and sure. Bill whatever it was. So, yeah. Well, like, yeah, here, like, here we are. Like, my parents live out of the country. And, like, you know, of, of both of them, like, one of them probably cares enough to continue voting and the other one probably doesn't. And, like, I don't just, you know, they've been gone a while, but, like, they come back and see family and do business here to some degree. And like, I just like the, they just, yeah, for me, it's like, why would you take that away? You know, like, why would you cut that bridge with people who, who have left the country, but still think it, of it as home? I have, yeah. but as you say, you don't have a strong opinion. On this. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty milk yeah. toast here. So I, I do have a strong opinion. Well, not a strong opinion, but some more facts I want to relay about 76. Go ahead. Um, as, as this is really relevant, 
Yeah, don't give me don't give me the watch symbol. No, I'm just oh, you know, I'm, I'm, like let's just let's, let's bring her home. Let's we're we're her going, home. we're going. Yeah, that's let, fine. Let, let me bring do, this do up. what you got to do. Um, so what do you know about seventy six? Seventy six was the act to amend. I mean, it's really big. The like, Canada like, Elections Act. Yeah. Uh, three hundred and sixty five ish pages, including notes. Yeah. Um, a replacement of uh, C thirty three, which is a twenty six, excluding uh, notes page bill. Uh, 33 was the Liberal government's initial attempt at reversing the changes in the Conservative Fair Elections Act. And Fair Elections Act. Um, and the then, anecdote is actually my favorite way to put that. <laughs> it never made it beyond first reading because they subsumed it with 76. Yeah. 76 is their essentially omnibus uh, p- bill to change... Uh, actually, Tim, this government doesn't do omnibus bills. <laughs> I mean, what is an omnibus bill? What isn't? Uh, it's all well. I mean, it's a big bill, but it's all germane, right? I, I, I yeah, don't, I, I, that, that, that's where this bill. argument becomes yeah. pedantic. Yeah. Um, very quickly. Um, so what? So I, I was perusing seventy six recently, and sort of the background of seventy six in light of the upcoming elections. Yes. And we never talked about it because we don't get to talk about all the bills. So one of the most interesting things I think of the bill is the creation of the pre-writ period or the yes. pre-election period um which is scheduled to begin i mean it's linked to the uh fixed election uh date in the canadian elections act um i think it's june 30th is when it'll the begin election starts yeah yeah so it, it's an attempt to curb both uh political partisan political spending yeah. from political parties as well as third parties yes as well as the third party spending, etc. Well, third party spending, the union donations, yeah, yeah. All, all of that that came up during the 2015 well, yeah, election. Well, yeah, I mean, that, uh, for people who don't remember, like, a substantial part of the reason we had such a long election the last time is was to preempt third party spending. Not because only... People, they were, uh, specifically, there was a concern that there was a sort of union-funded campaign against the conservatives that was running ads, and part of the early election call was to basically stop them running ads, which, like, you know, that's... Not only people wouldn't be like maybe liberals and and NDP folks are like oh how dare they but like people would if if Canada proud or Ontario proud were like running big ads like every day you'd probably feel the same way. So not only stop them from running ads, not only limit third party fundraising because of the rules or not fundraising but advertising because of the rules um, in the RIP period. Um, but also the longer RIP meant that higher caps on party spending because it increased by yeah. approximately a million dollars a day for every additional day of the RIT. Um, so these are all things that have been impacted by this. Like a lot of the bill, I mean, there's a lot of recommendations from the chief electoral officer or whatever the guy's title is. Yeah. Formerly Mark Mayran, yeah. but now someone else. Um, but it makes a 50-day cap on the RIT. Period. So thirty mm-hmm. between thirty six and fifty days. Um, so in, important when we're looking at when this election call will be made. Um, fixed funding cap or fixed spending cap, rather. And then during the pre-elections period, when you um, say fixed spending cap, do you mean irrespective of the length of the election? Okay, correct. Just to clarify, that, that, yeah. those two things are no longer pegged to each other. Um, and then there is a cap in the pre-election period of approximately 1.5 mil for parties and 1 mil for third parties. Okay. Um, so it's essentially a brave new world in terms of electoral rules versus the 2015 election. Um, and all of that starts to take effect in June. So right after Parliament rises. Right. Effectively. Yeah. Um, so all of this is, I would say, very interesting. Indeed. Um, in terms of 
Does it curb the permanent campaign? How much spending beforehand? Less spending on this election than previous elections? Yes. Yeah. The like, social media rules are actually lines. very interesting in C76 as well. Uh, and that it defined um, sort of a significant platform for the purposes of electoral advertising where they would incur certain reporting obligations for ads run on their platforms at uh, 5 million users, I believe, for majority English language uh, platforms and 1 million for majority French language platforms, uh, which is kind of interesting in that someone has finally put a number on that. And um, if you look at the Ethics Committee's recent report on uh, like big data elections, etc. I think one of their recommendations drew on that number uh, to sort of establish a significant, uh, like what constitutes a significant platform, which is interesting. And uh, yeah, I so, think that's a... So those particular reporting obligations in regards to digital or online platforms, I can't remember the yeah. wording of the bill, actually were introduced via amendment, uh, liberal amendment, yeah. but amendment nonetheless. They were not part of the original legislation. Yeah. They were tacked on the end um, because, again, one of the sort of side um, side objectives of the legislation was to curb uh, well, foreign pre, influence. Yeah, to pre- right? Well, foreign influence and also just sort of like what we're talking about, these kind as, of like as well as third parties shitty to, information loops, like to sort of bring that into the open, uh, sure. which I think is, is a good first step. I think there's, if we're talking about the, the platforms and democracy, there's a whole big conversation. I would love to have someday about that. Uh, perhaps I can wait for another time. Uh, that will probably do it for us this week. I think Unless we only made anything. it through uh, cabinet shuffle on Monday. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh yeah, Scott Bryson. Very, very quickly, what yeah. you, what, as minister, not as an MP. Well, resigning as minister immediately, not running for re-election right. as MP. Yeah. Um, how many ministers are going to be shuffled? Oh, I don't know. Two, four, three. I don't. I, I, I have small no shuffle, idea. large shuffle. Make, uh, prob- probably small. Make I mean, some predictions. You've only that got. I can... You've only got a couple of, of months at this point to, to do government stuff. I think people are. It's not going to be huge. You're hearing it first here. Yeah. Bill Moore, no to fisheries and oceans. <laughs> Exiled. Uh, yeah. I mean, we'll we'll wait and see. Indeed, we shall. We'll have we'll have comments. Indeed. Uh, so yeah, that will do it that's, for us. That's this... Laurent trying to cut me off. Well, do you have anything more? No, I, I could, but here we are. Okay. So that will do it for us this week. Uh, thank you once again for listening. If this is your first episode, I guess thank you for the first time for <laughs> listening. Uh, though, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks so much. You can follow us at shortpantspod uh, on twitter.com. We had a couple beers this week. Uh, Icelandic toasted porter, Einstoke. It was pretty good. I mean, th- this is the one it's, worth it's mentioning. Just, yeah, the Ballast Point Sculpin IPA, which uh, tastes just like a real Sculpin. Uh, that was great. <laughs> just fish. Yes. Uh, no, it's fine. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll do... I don't know. They were fine. I didn't I, really, I, nothing really jumped out to me, to I can t- Well, you really have to appreciate Ballast Point. It's sort of like in beer history. It was one of the original sort of IPAs that defined the IPA category on the West Coast. Uh, Ballast Point, one of the biggest breweries, was bought by Constellation Brands for about a billion dollars. Um, I want to try their stouts, but here we are. Here we are indeed. Uh, thanks. Uh, we will record an episode in the future and you will <laughs> enjoy it. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>